What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the one-stop shop for all things coaching. We dive heavily into training and nutrition. That is what this show is about. However, we do not stop there. No, we go way deeper than that. We talk entrepreneurship, success, stress, lifestyle, everything you could possibly think of in order to live a more positive life, but also to just help you personally develop. That's what this show is about. I like to say it's the coach in your speakers, and that's what I'm trying to do as a coach is coach you through these speakers and help you grow in every area of your life. Today's podcast is a Q&A. If you're unfamiliar with this podcast whatsoever and if you have not listened yet, first and foremost, please do me a favor. Hit the subscribe button because that helps me grow and that helps the podcast grow, which helps us give you more free advice, results, and content. But also, go check out the top four episodes of this podcast rated by the listeners themselves. That's going to be the Nutrition FAQ, the Training FAQ, Nutritional Periodization, and My Personal Journey into Fitness. Now, again, today is a Q&A, which means I'm going to go through as many questions as possible. And shit, we got a lot, guys. Let's see. We got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. We have a lot of questions. Um, this is going to be good, though. We have um, – actually, I have a couple questions on my phone as well from Instagram. So we're going to crank through all these Facebook and Instagram questions. Guys, if you're not following me on Instagram, head over to Instagram. Follow me at Cody.BoomBoom. It's a great place to ask me questions to get personal DMs back, but it's also a good place to get your questions asked on the podcast. Um, you can also check out one of our eBooks, and that will give you access into the private Facebook forum where I'm answering questions constantly, but I'm also getting questions for the podcast. That's what this show is about um, as far as the Q&As. It's about bringing the questions from the listener and answering them live so you can get your answers, you can get better results. Oh, and last but not least, you can head over to the website and you can actually fill out the free form. So if you ever feel like just randomly asking me a question, go to boomboomperformance.com slash podcast, there is a form that actually says ask boom boom and you can literally fill it out and ask me any questions free. It comes to my email personally and then I'll bring it up on the show. Um, a lot of times I answer it in email form too so you can get a personal answer and a podcast answer. But today is almost solely training and nutrition related. I think we have like one uh, personality question and I have a really good case study question meaning somebody actually asked me for advice with their client and they gave me a ton of information about their client going into this fitness challenge they're at a plateau so on and so forth how to make the most out of it and I'm going to bring that up and break it down so you can kind of hear live how I would handle that client so there's a lot of good questions today guys um, let's waste no more time because I tend to do that quite a bit I rant too much let's get on to this podcast all right, so our first question comes from Gary Michael Flanagan. Flanagan sounds like a name from a movie. Gary, I've had f several conversations with you on social media at this point. I believe you found me through Steve Hall. Shout out to Steve Hall, great guy, great coach. Um, if anybody listening to this knows where the name Flanagan is from, shoot me a DM. Gary, you might be the guy that knows where Flanagan is from. But if Flanagan is from a movie, I don't know why, but it like Christmas Vacation, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, like that comes into mind, but maybe that's not it. Um, maybe I'm thinking of something completely different. But if you have a name from a movie, let me know. I'm curious. I'm that guy that – will go crazy if I don't get the answer. Um, it's so funny. We were watching Blacklist last night, and Shannon said, this is going to drive you crazy. Who's that guy from? And I, I have this weird skill. I should have put this in my Instagram post the other day when I was talking about 25 random facts about me. But I have this really, really weird skill, and I mean I'm really good at it, at watching a movie or a TV show 
and being able to see somebody's face and know exactly where they are from. Meaning I'll see a show or a movie and I immediately am like, that's the guy that played the janitor in season two of Lost. And it's like, what? What are you talking about, dude? It's, but it's like, boom. It comes to mind. It's really weird. Um, horrible memory for uh, any around the chore, house chores that Shannon wants me to do. Horrible memory for dates, names, things like that. But if you need me to guess where an actor is actually from, I got you. It's kind of crazy. So Gary Flanagan, random fact about Cody. Gary Flanagan. Cody, can you find out why a lot of keto experts talk about pink Himalayan sea salt and stress the importance of no iodine, yet Stan Efferding is such a big fan of iodine? Why do you think some diets restrict it and some are for it? Thanks. Um, so this is from the YouTube video of uh, me and Stan Efferding, um, which reminds me to remind you guys real quick. We are now filming almost all of our – conversations for the podcast besides these Q&As. So when you go check out a YouTube video, it's actually us talking on the screen. So you can actually see us talking. So highly suggest you go check out the YouTube for that. Um, link is in the show notes. So um, I think the reason is uh, if you get too high of levels of iodine, so if you like, I don't think you can really overdose on them, but if you get too much iodine, you can have actually some of the same symptoms as an iodine deficiency, um, which includes like goiter, uh, which is not good for the thyroid. Um, it, technically, that can cause inflammation and possibly cancer, but that's like going on a, a limb. It's, it's just very hard to do that. It's one of those things that's like water is great for you, but if you drink too much water, then you can die, literally drown. It's, it's not that extreme, but, um, too much iodine can cause that issue. Um, I think a, a big part of that too, is if we look at iodized salt, um, and you're not training, you're not exercising, you're not living that stressful performance lifestyle too much salt in general, too much sodium in general can cause issues. And we know that, um, especially if people have hypertension or have a history of hypertension. A lot of people don't, and a lot of people listen to this podcast are training hard enough to actually use that salt and sodium. Um, but I think one of the reasons they recommend pink Himalayan salt is it's because it's less likely to have an overdose of iodine. It's less likely to create those symptoms that are like an iodine deficiency, but it's actually from a surplus. And it's less likely to cause any type of issues with sodium, hypertension, things like that. Um, but the reality is, is it's so unbelievably hard to come about. Remember, salt is a mineral. Sodium is a mineral. So sodium is something that provides us electrolytes. It helps us stay hydrated. It helps our muscles stay hydrated. Um, in high-performance states, if we're using a lot of that salt to retain water in the muscle cell, we're using it to help facilitate uh, glycogen storage, glycolysis, so actually taking carbohydrates and fueling the muscle with it. Um, if we're using sodium properly inside of training, inside of performance, the thyroid is going to get enough. It's actually going to stay healthier because we can deplete our thyroid of the iodine as well because we need iodine to have a healthy thyroid. Um, I think it's just one of those things that, that fear-mongering came out and people read one study that they saw something and they got crazy about it. It's the same thing with cholesterol. People saw that high cholesterol led to XYZ and they freaked out and thought everybody needs to cut all cholesterol out. When in, in most cases and what they're finding out now is that high cholesterol um, isn't necessarily a result or like bad cholesterol, I should say, or uh, issues that are occurred from what they thought was high cholesterol isn't actually what they think it is. Reading high cholesterol or eating cholesterol on your diet isn't a good uh, dictator or it's not a good indication of 
those issues that occur from quote-unquote high cholesterol that they once believed. Um, and we also know that cholesterol is one of the producers of testosterone. So removing cholesterol is a horrible idea for uh, expecting good hormonal balance. So I think a lot of times people hear one thing, they see one study, they get one correlation usually, and then they, they go out and they release it to the public and it causes a lot of fear-mongering. It causes a lot of scarcity. And I think the same thing happened with iodine. The reality is, is iodine is going to be good for you. Um, the Japanese are a good example of this. Japanese uh, are actually really healthy individuals. They have some of the best, uh, you could call it carb tolerance, but really just the ability to absorb carbs properly. They have a low case of thyroid dysfunction from some stuff I read back in the day. So I haven't looked into this recently, but um, there's a lot of good information that shows, yes, their movement helps. Yes, their lifestyle helps. Um, but also the amount of seaweed and fresh fish they eat gives them a lot of omega-3s and a lot of iodine. These two things together, kelp, seaweed, those things have a lot of iodine in it. This is causing them to have a more functional nervous system and thyroid. Um, and I, I, I'm a big believer. I have iodized salt every single day. Um, I don't put it on all my meals. I go about half and half. So like half of my meals have iodized salt. Half of my meals have pink Himalayan salt because pink Himalayan salt has a ton of beneficial advantages to it as well. So I don't think you should go all in on one or the other. I think you should have a mix. And if you're training really hard, there's no reason you should not be having any iodine. Um, it is important for thyroid health. And that's why I stand everything's a big fan of it. But again, just like anything, if you go too far in any one direction, I think you're going to have issues. Adrian Frank Ling, with the importance of eating whole foods, should you be consuming daily fruit whole or is frozen fruit in a smoothie okay? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of those things is fruit is fruit. You know what I mean? You should probably have one to two servings of fruit per day. Um, if you're on a gaining phase, you could bump that up to two to three, two to four maybe. Um, you don't want to do too much fruit. The bigger you are, the more fruit you can have. And that's why I don't generally recommend like I don't always say one serving is one cup. I usually say a handful. Um, and the reason I say that is because the bigger you are, the bigger your hand, the more fruit you can probably handle. Because the bigger you are, the bigger your liver is. Liver is the primary thing that is consuming fruit. So when we consume fruit, it goes through a process of being converted into liver glycogen. Liver glycogen is the fuel for the liver to function properly. Starch, like potato, oat, rice, things like that, uh, that is glucose that gets shuttled as muscle glycogen. So that is the fuel source of the muscle cell. We can store, I want to say, I don't know off the top of my head, like how much muscle glycogen you can store is dependent on the person's size and their muscle mass, but it's at least two, three times more than what the liver can store. Um, and because of that, you don't need nearly as much fruit. However, if the liver is tapped out, your nervous system is going to be tapped out. Your muscles aren't going to perform as well either. So it is important to keep that storage full. And when we sleep, we deplete about 50% or more of our liver glycogen through oxygen in the night. So removing fruit is a bad idea. But um, I think fruit is fruit. You know what I mean? Like if you prefer fruit in a smoothie because you can get it all in one, boom, do it. It's totally up to you. I do about um, a half a cup to a cup of – it all just depends on what my meals look like for the day and hitting my macros um, – I hit about a half a cup to a cup of blueberries every day. I'm, I'm a big fan of blueberries. Uh, I would say if there's one superfood that's a fruit, it's probably going to be blueberries. Kiwis are up there too. But blueberries have good fiber. They have one, they're the, one of the most antioxidant-rich uh, fruits there is. Um, they're really low-calorie, low-sugar. They're easy to fit in macros. They're really diverse. You can put them in so many different things, and they're great. Smoothies by themselves, frozen, uh, oatmeal. I put them with cream of rice, like everything. So – Cottage cheese. Cottage cheese and frozen blueberries is amazing. Um, 
I'm going to link a video that Jeff Nipper did on superfoods, like the science behind them. And I'm going to link a blog I did, uh, Caroline wrote, Coach Caroline from the team wrote on uh, superfoods as well. We wrote one kind of the superfoods being a myth and what the real deal is about those. And then Jeff actually did a video talking about um, if there are real superfoods, what are they, why are they? Um, and that one has blueberries in it. And blueberries not only have a high antioxidant rating, everything I said, but they also have um, a specific nutrient that almost can't be found anywhere else. So they're really good. The thing I don't like about blueberries is that they make your teeth super blue. Um, I brush my teeth like four times a day because I have coffee and blueberries in multiple different meals. So I'm constantly like trying to get my teeth white again. But um, I have about a half cup to a cup of blueberries and I usually have a banana a day. Um, Nothing special about the banana. I just love bananas and that's what I choose to eat. But yeah, I think one to two servings a day. I prefer to eat my food usually rather than smoothies, but I don't think there's any negative impact by having it in a smoothie versus eating it whole. Pro Burke, shoot me a message and let me know what your real full name is because Burke is B-R-K and I got to imagine that's abbreviated and I don't know if Pro is your real name or if that's an abbreviated version of your name, but I want to know your real name. You're in the elite. Um, Shout out to the elite members. Guys, if you're if you're listening to this and you don't know what the Elite is, it is the one-stop shop. It is the best place, in my opinion, online to get unlimited training programs. Really smart program design, and I actually teach you how to design them yourself. I give you a ton of education. I answer all the questions. I make sure that they're adjusted to you. I give you advice on which programs to follow when. Like It literally is. When I say one-stop shop for all things training, like I literally mean it. Um, and I'm really proud of what it's become. There's a link in the show notes. I highly suggest people join. If you do not know what you're doing for training, if you have a goal, if you're following a nutrition plan, you don't have your nutrition training locked in with that nutrition plan. Like this is the place. This is where all of our clients who do nutrition with us get the best results. The, the elite is the place to be. Um, anyway, how to fast safely. That's their question. Fasting isn't recommended for people with hormonal d- disorders, uh, example would be Hashimoto's hypothalam- ugh, hypothalamic amenorrhea. That is a fucking tongue twister, um, even though I said it a million times in my life. Um, you know those words where you just always butcher them no matter what? Um, is there a way to do it without negatively impacting hormones? My maintenance calories are high and eating can be a chore. I feel like some fasting could give my digestive system a rest. Yes. So there is a couple ways that I would recommend. Um, one way that I typically try to do myself that I don't think would have any negative impact on hormones. Um, the main thing we're thinking about with fasting is like the biggest negative impact is going to be cortisol. Uh, fasting can be a stress. It can raise cortisol higher. Um, and if that happens, it can have a indirect effect on other hormones. Um, now with the female body, hormonal system in general, the entire endocrine system is just sensitive. So any subtle change in nutrient timing can cause some issues. This is why I don't typically like women to fast on a daily basis. I like perfectly, not perfectly, nothing's perfect, but evenly spread meals throughout the day. I think you're going to function better because your body's constantly getting an influx of nutrients. And I think that's going to support your hormonal system a little bit better. Um, but what I would recommend is 12 hours every night. So if, if I finish my last meal at 8 a.m., and this is actually typically what I do, um, I try to do it. The only time I don't do this is if I have to work out pretty early. Like this morning, I had to get it in at like 7 in the morning, so I couldn't do it. But usually my last meal is at 8 p.m. It's like a casein, banana, peanut butter, ice cream thing. I eat that at about 8 p.m. 
ideal world, I don't eat breakfast till 8 a.m. I have coffee in the morning, so technically I'm not in a true fast, but like digestive purposes is what I'm going for here. My insulin's still low because I'm not eating a bunch of food. Um, I just have some coffee in the morning, water, and then I wait till 8 a.m. and I have a meal. That's 12 hours apart. 12 hours apart is half the day. If you spend half of your day not consuming calories and you spend half your day consuming calories, it gives your digestive system just as much of a break as it does work. Um, I've seen a lot of success with people doing this. I've seen a lot of people have less bloat, better uh, insulin sensitivity is going to be improved as well, um, but also just uh, nutrient partitioning, so the way your body actually utilizes calories. Um, that's what I would do with you. That's not long enough to have any serious side effects because it's essentially waking up and waiting a couple hours, um, or it's just not eating so late. So if I wanted to uh, work out early every morning, I could just stop eating at 6 p.m., um, and that would actually be ideal. There's a lot of studies on intermittent fasting coming out right now that actually show that if you want to truly intermittent fast to benefit your sleep and your circadian rhythm, you should actually probably eat early in the morning when you wake up and the sun comes up and you should stop eating in the afternoon. So your fast is not like skipping breakfast and going till 2 p.m. to eat. It's actually stopping eating at like 4, 5, 6, whenever you stop eating and not eating till the next day in the morning. Um, because they're, they're finding that more calories at night can't have an effect. I think it's splitting hairs. Um, I'm kind of mixed on this because, you know, like at the end of the day, calories in versus calories out really is the biggest key driver of body composition. Body composition and having excess fat is the key driver to having hormonal or blood issues. So like blood issues as any type of blood test that's going to give you health markers, cholesterol issues, cardiovascular issues, diabetes, anything like that. So I have, find it hard to believe, but... Um, I have scheduled one already and I'm scheduling another, uh, podcast, two different sleep experts with PhDs. So I'm going to have two different people come on the podcast, get two different opinions on all things sleep. They both went to college for it, um, studied it. That's what they study in the lab right now. I'm super excited about both of them and I'm going to ask them these questions. So we'll have more on that soon, but I think the best way to go is 12 hours. Um, it's either going to be 12 hours a day cause that's not long enough. It's just helps digestion below insulin sensitivity. Or you could do one day per week where you go like 20 to 24 hours. Um, yes, it is a longer period of time, so it could possibly be more stressful. But I also think that the benefits outweigh the negatives. One day a week of doing a long fast is actually really, really health promoting. Um, I mean, autophagy, uh, so cell regeneration, um, disease prevention, insulin sensitivity, cutting calories down a little bit, so on and so forth. I think that's really positive. Um, and the thing you got to remember too is if you're at maintenance and you're focusing on that and you have to eat a, a lot of calories to stay at maintenance for yourself, if you do a fast every day, you're making that eating window even smaller. Yes, you have less meals, but those meals are going to be massive. So by the time you get to your second meal, you're still not even hungry. So I would actually argue that you should eat right when you wake up and eat right before you go to bed. So you're having more meals throughout the day to make it easier on yourself. Rhiannon. Oh, this is a non-training and nutrition question. I like it. Rhiannon Healy says, what does your process of auditing your life through journaling look like? Um, so... This is something I've talked to uh, my mentor clients about multiple times, and I, I believe that everybody should audit their life. I mean, you could do it every month. I do it every quarter, um, but you got to do it at least every year. Um, I do it at the beginning of every year. Like I do a really long, thoughtful meditation, journaling session of just auditing everything. Um, and I think the best thing to do with that is to look at every aspect of your life. You know, I always talk about the four pillars. There's your body. So with Wake Up Warriors, something I went through, and they call it body being balanced business. Um, I know, I want to say Jason Phillips. I don't know if he still calls it, but health, wealth, um, family finance. 
something like that. Um, there's a bunch of different ways you can spend it. Tony Robbins has his own thing. Keller Williams, everybody does. Uh, but the way I look at it is you have your body, right? So physical nature, your health, your muscle, your fat, your nutrition, your training, your movement, so on and so forth. You have your mindset. This is what we think. This is our confidence. This is our energy. This is our mental clarity. This is our uh, spirituality. This is our emotional well-being. This is everything that has to do with ourself personally. We have our relationships. So this is your wife, your kids, your family, your your mom, your dad, your brother, your coworkers, your friends, everybody in like that is a connected human being to you. And then we have our business and finances, your savings, your investments, your your business, your coaching, your money, everything along those lines. And we kind of have these four pillars. And I just say you should audit every area. So first going through them all for me personally is like I list those things out. Body, mind, relationships, wealth. Look at those things and now I'm going to say, okay, cool. My body. Let me audit that. Am I happy with what I look like? Am I happy with how I feel? Am I happy with how often I'm sleeping? Am I happy with my nutrition? What are my goals? What is negatively impacting these things? What around me is causing me to not fulfill my goals? What bad habits do I have? Right? My relationship, same thing. What people am I surrounding myself that I do not like right now that aren't benefiting me, that aren't helping me and my family grow or be happier? I need to handle those things. My business, same thing. What's coming down? What's coming up? What do I like? What do I not like? What am I not doing enough of? What am I doing too much of? What's distracting me? What's being productive for me? What makes me happy? What actually stresses me out? You just have to look at everything, right? Um, your mind is, is going to be heavily involving your environment. Where do I work? Where do I sleep? Where do I chill? Where do I work out? Who do I hang out with? Like my environment as a whole. What is my mind thinking? Am I lacking confidence? Am I lacking certainty? Do I get distracted easy? Do I have faith? Do I want faith? Like auditing can be different for everybody. I think it's a very individual thing. For me, it's just asking questions, looking at each area of my life and asking questions about everything that goes into it, comes out of it, and affects it. And if I can do that, I have a much more clear image of where I want it to go, where it's at right now, and what's stopping it from getting there, if anything's stopping from getting there. If you're doing this right every quarter, there's not a ton of things you need to audit. And then at the end of the year, you kind of audit your year, audit every area of your life in that year, and then you kind of project where you want it to go next year. Um, so my process is very freestyle journaling. Um, it's just a lot of questioning. And I think as a good coach or a good self-coach, I think that's what it's about. It's about questioning what you're doing, questioning what's coming in, what questioning what's going out, questioning everything. Because questions are what leads to answers, right? Like that's – I mean it's obvious, but I don't think enough people – I don't think enough people take the time to ask themselves deep questions, but I also don't think people um, invest emotionally into the right questions. Like I don't think they're willing to ask themselves the hard questions. And I think the hard, at least for me, the hard questions are what has helped me grow the most in my life. I hope that answers your question. I think a lot of it is just freestyle journaling, to be honest with you, but um, that's the best answer I got. Amanda, Amanda Jessica Sugin has two questions. You talk a lot about getting greens in, but can other colored vegetables be included as greens, like cauliflower, peppers, root vegetables, etc.? Mama said, eat your greens, but are greens the best and only way? Um, I like that ending. Mama said, um, so yes and no. So the reason I say yes and no is um, other colored vegetables should be included in your daily intake. 
Um, but I do believe you need to prioritize greens. So here's an example. If you're including cauliflower, pepper, stuff like that, and you only get those, you're failing to get any dark cruciferous greens. And there's certain vitamins and minerals and especially fiber in a lot of them that are only – not I shouldn't say only, but are heavily included in dark leafy greens, dark cruciferous greens, broccoli, asparagus, um, green beans even, spinach, kale, bok choy. Like these things have a ton of nutrients that we should be striving for above all else. I always tell people, hey, like you should get four, I would say four, most people, like most normal sized people, you should get four servings of vegetables and two to four servings of greens. What that means is you could have two servings of greens, two servings of colored vegetables, or you could have three servings of greens, one serving of colored vegetables, two to four servings of total veggies, two to four, or I'm sorry, four servings of total veggies, two servings of greens is going two servings of minimum amount of greens is going to be the ideal um and the reason i say that is again dark cruciferous greens are going to have certain nutrients in it that other colored vegetables aren't going to have a lot of other colored vegetables are higher carb too so they're more insulogenic um spinach kale are, they're literally packed with so many nutrients broccoli things like that so much fiber but they don't pack a huge carb or calorie punch with them you can eat quite a bit get a lot of nutrients in fill your body up and not overdo calories Bell peppers, carrots, um, root vegetables would even be sweet potatoes, squash, zucchini, um, things like this. They have a ton of nutrients in it, but they also do pack some caloric uh, value to it too. Um, some of them have more fructose too. So some of these like tomatoes, peppers, things like that, they have more sugars in it. They're good sugars, but they're sugars. So there's just more caloric value to them and they're more insulogenic, which what that means is that they have more of a blood sugar response to them. Um, so you can't get away with eating as much of them inside your calories, not only from a volume perspective, but also from an insulin blood sugar um, perspective as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's going to be my answer on that. And then she said, on that note, I do eat a lot of cauliflower, especially to add volume to stir-fry and smoothies. It can make me a bit gassy and gives me soft stools, but I don't really feel uncomfortable. But is this considered digestive distress and ultimately bad for me? I would say yes. Um, it's the same thing with like – like that's how I am with broccoli. I love broccoli. But, I mean, I'm going to get bloated. And if you're getting bloated or you're having any type of digestive stress, if you have – so if, you're, if your body is bloated, if you're gassy, if you are having loose stools or uh, uncomfortable stools or any type of stress or discomfort, um, that is a gut response. It's probably not good. It doesn't necessarily mean that cauliflower is bad. It just might mean you're eating too much of it. Like for me – I, I love broccoli, but I love broccoli like roasted. Like roasted broccoli in the oven's great, and I could eat a ton of it. But when I eat a ton of it, I don't feel great. I can ignore it and keep eating it. It's not the end of the world. I'm not breaking out an eczema or having an autoimmune-related response, but it's also causing some gut stress. When I have gut stress, I retain more water. I have more bloat. Um, I'm probably not partitioning and absorbing nutrients as well because I have gut stress. It's just not a good result, so why do it? I would rather have something like asparagus because it sits really well. Um, the only thing I hate about asparagus, and if somebody knows the answer to this, please let me know. It's so fucking expensive. Why is asparagus so expensive? I always always hear it on rap songs. They'd be like, sitting down eating lobster and asparagus, blah, blah, like rapping and stuff. And I was always like, why are you rapping about asparagus? And then we started buying more asparagus to get rid of broccoli lately. And I, I literally was like, I get it now. It's too fucking expensive. It makes no sense. It's not that much better. Um, but anyway, back to the point. I've been doing a lot more kale spinach mix, um, a lot more asparagus, and I feel way better. I'm way less bloated. I look better. I feel better, and it makes me not miss broccoli much. Every once in a while, I'll have a shit ton of it because we feel like roast broccoli, and I'll 
pay the consequence. It's not the end of the world, but I don't think doing too much of it is a good idea because if you do have any gut stress in your body, it can lead to other stresses in your body and other poor results that we don't want. So I would recommend cutting it down quite a bit. Dabney Galloway. You have a client that hits their macros, works out consistently several times a week, sleeps well, and ha- always has a lots of energy. The scale is refusing to move at all. What advice would you give your client? Damn, that's a good one. You have a client that hits their macros, works out consistently several times a week, sleeps well, and always has lots of energy, but the scale is refusing to move at all. What advice would you give your client? So obviously, it depends. I would first look at what their caloric intake is now. Most of the time in these scenarios, they are not being aggressive enough. In my experience, taking a slow conservative approach with somebody is best because if we take a slow conservative approach, we're going to steadily lose fat. We're going to be able to sustain that deficit for longer. We're not going to have as bad of a hormonal impact, meaning metabolic adaptation, hormonal adaptation, and just feeling lethargic or fatigued is less likely to occur. It's a better situation all around. However, in individuals who have a highly adaptive metabolism, so this is usually people who you reverse diet and they respond really well. Like it's like, oh, I'm not gaining any weight. I'm eating a ton of calories. Everybody hates them, um, but they're loving the process. And then they go to cut because they're like, okay, now I've, I've healed my metabolism. I'm ready to go. Let's cut. And they cut and nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. It's because they have a highly adaptive, adaptive metabolism. On the way up, their adap- uh, metabolism adapts quick meaning they don't gain weight from the calories they're adding, but on the way down, the same highly adaptive metabolism doesn't lose weight as calories are coming out unless you make a big aggressive jump. This is where things like the Matador study work really well where we go, okay, we're going to take a huge hit, 20 to 30% calorie drop. So you take a big calorie deficit. You're going to grind it out for two weeks. Then we're going to give you a two-week diet break where you don't you maintain weight, maybe gain a pound or two, but it's just glycogen because glycogen carbs hold water. And then we're going to go back into the cut. It's going to take you twice as long to get to your result. So instead of an eight week cut, it might take 16 weeks, but you're actually going to see progress that lasts because we're able to break through this sticking point that you weren't getting in. So the first thing I would do is look at calories and, and kind of determine if this individual, sorry, I would look at calories and their diet history. Because if somebody comes to me, one of the biggest things I'm looking at is their diet history. What have you done in the past? Have you had to reverse diet? Are you known for doing chronic deficits? Um, Do you train a lot? Do you have high stress? If you're an individual that is in that circumstance, I'm probably going to take an aggressive cut and do more frequent diet breaks, whether it is an alternating two-week, two-week pattern, whether it's an alternating weekly pattern, whether it's a one-week on, three days off pattern. Like There's a million ways to to skin a cat, but I'm probably going to go with an approach like that with anybody that does the the scale is refusing to move because of that. The next thing I'm going to say is stress. So I know you said they sleep well and they're hitting their macros, but let's say they're hitting their macros and they're on a lower carb diet. That already is going to cause a little bit of stress on the body. Um, Let's say that they sleep well or they sleep really good, but they're only getting six hours a night. Okay, let's bump that to seven to eight. Let's say they sleep well, they're hitting the macros, they have a bunch of energy, everything's great, cool, but they hate their job and they're in a bad relationship. Okay, I can't give you marital advice or financial advice, but let's talk about that stress. Either handle it better or deal with it because at the end of the day, stress can make a massive impact on your results. If your cortisol is too high all the time, um, and this is why I'm going to write a full blog on on everything you need to know about cortisol. It's going to be dope. But if your cortisol is too high all the time, stress is too high, not only are you going to retain a lot of water, so it's going to mask any weight loss that could be occurring, but you're also going to just stop weight loss from happening. Cortisol is a good thing. It can help us perform. It can help us build muscle. It can help us do a lot of cool things, but it can also delay or pause fat loss. So if cortisol is constantly up, 
it's more than just calories in versus calories out. We, we don't even need to touch your macros. We need to look at your cortisol levels and getting your stress down. Um, the other thing I would say is if somebody comes to me and they're hitting their macros but they're not working, I would look at the composition of those calories. I would look at the ratio of those macros. I've had a lot of people come to me that are hitting their macros and I simply bump protein up a little bit higher than one one point. Uh, one gram per pound. I bump carbs up a little bit higher, drop fats kind of low, and all of a sudden, boom, they start training harder and uh, burning more calories. Therefore, they lose weight. They just weren't taking in enough energy, carbs, to train really hard. They weren't taking enough protein in to A, be satiated, and B, fill their calories with a nutrient that's not going to store as fat. So for example, if we bump protein above one gram per pound but keep calories the same, we're not taking a caloric hit. However, carbs and fats have to drop a little bit to fit that extra protein. That's going to be a benefit to fat loss. So there's a lot of things I would do. Um, It's a great question, but it's so open-ended that I would be like, okay, you're either one of 18 different situations, and I would go one of 18 different ways with you. So I hope that helps a little bit. Um, I would also look at training as well. I know they work out consistently several times a week, but I mean, what are you doing for training? I don't know how many times I've had people come on board and their training is just not great. Um, This happens a lot. We'll get people come on board for nutrition. We'll take over their nutrition. We won't put them in a deficit. We'll keep them at their maintenance. We'll adjust macros a little bit and we'll get them into the elite. So they go from doing CrossFit five or six days a week to doing CrossFit three days a week and some of the training I have in there. They'll go from doing a bodybuilding bro split to a upper lower push pull legs or an upper lower split inside the elite. They'll go from just kind of winging it and doing it whatever to going to a structured plan inside the elite and they see a big difference. So a lot of times training has a big involvement as well. Sarah Pringle, thinking about getting into podcasting, what advice do you have for me? Hmm. Number one, do it because you like educating. I think anybody who goes into podcasting strictly from a business perspective, I think you're going to have a rude awakening. Um, I'm doing this for free. I don't have sponsors on my podcast. Is it good marketing for my brand? Absolutely. I'm not going to tell you that this isn't uh, helping drive my business, but I don't do this to drive my business. I didn't start it to drive my business. I started it with other people. And this is how I can prove it. I started this with other people. So it wasn't just me. And those people didn't benefit from my business. So we had a rule. You couldn't just sit there and market your own business. Therefore, it was purely for educational purposes. I was on this mic just to teach people more about training and nutrition. Um, And I honestly love that. So I think the first rule about getting into podcasting is you really have to love educating people. You really have to love talking about what you're going to podcast about. Um, The next thing, have an opportunity shift. Why are you different than the next person? right? I think the reason I'm different than most people on a podcast is because one, I have a gift for Q and A's. I can just go on questions and I think people really respond well to when you can ask me your question and I can personally answer it and talk to you individually. Like that feels good. I know when I get my answer, my questions answered on podcasts, I feel good. I like that. They're talking to me. They're helping me. They care. Like, I think that's really important. Um, I don't script anything. I don't write any notes. I haven't even looked at these questions. I don't even, like, I literally don't even look at the questions. I copy and paste them into a Google Doc, and then I don't read them until we start. So it's real, it's raw, it's authentic. And I think that's really important. If you're ready to do it off the cuff, you're ready to just keep it real, you're ready to keep, be transparent with people, open up about anything that comes in front of you. Um, you guys have heard it. I've read things <laughs> on the questions that weren't supposed to be read because I'm like an anchor man. I just read the fucking screen. But it's, it's real, it's raw, it's authentic. It's one take, it's right straight through, no editing, that's what we do. Um, I think that's important. I think authenticity is really, really important for podcasting, for successful podcasting. Um, and then consistency. 
if you're not ready to do this a lot, I don't think you should get into it. Um, I mean, we're at three episodes a week now, but it's like, you got to have a routine. People know what days my podcasts are coming out. So I'm going to keep delivering them no matter what, like it's a priority to me. So if you're not ready to drop podcasts on the same days, every week, week after week, month after month, I think that's a big red flag too. You got to be ready to do it consistently. Um, and you got to be able to do it for the long haul consistently. It's a slow grind. I've been doing this shit for like two years now and now it's starting to grow. Um, you know, I've been at this every week for more than two years, guys. It takes a long time to really, really build a podcast. And I don't even, I think I'm on a small scale compared to the podcast I look up to and the people I know who run successful podcasts personally. Um, I'm a small scale on it, man. So like, uh, be ready to go for the long haul, which, which reminds me guys, like seriously, like two things. Number one, all the people out there listening to this right now that share this podcast. Thank you. Like, I cannot tell you, number one, how excited I get when I get mentioned on Instagram and it's somebody sharing my podcast and they're fired up to listen to what I'm telling them or, or learn with me. Like, that shit makes me super happy. So thank you for everybody who listens and shares this stuff. Um, and anybody who listens who's not sharing, if you really do love this podcast, if you really do enjoy what I'm doing here and, and you value the time I spend and the effort we put in to give you this free content, please do me a huge favor and share it. Subscribe to this podcast, share it with people and get others to subscribe because um, this is one of my biggest missions and passions is to teach you through this podcast. So if you can help me deliver this to more people and get more people listening and subscribe, it would mean the world to me. All right. James Ward said, best exercise suggestions for office employees sitting and typing all day. Maybe this should be a suggestion for your next program. Nope. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, I think that making a full ebook program for desk jockeys just – I don't think it's uh, – I do not think it's as specific as I like to make programs. If I'm making a program, it's for a specific performance or aesthetic result. Um, getting out of pain is something that you're going to want individual attention from. So if it's a desk jockey that's in pain, I think it's just a different story. Um, I think that like the best thing for you to do is just train. Like don't like if you can get in the gym and just keep a ratio of two to one pulling to pushing on your whole body, I think you'd be safe. If we're sitting all day, two things happen. Shoulders round forward and your hips are flexed. I mean, your hip flexors are super tight and your pec minor, your pec tendon, your bicep tendon, everything in your shoulder is very tight too. Um, and you're hunched forward. So you need to do a couple things. Number one, you need to stretch your hip flexors and breathe through it. If you're not breathing through the hip flexor stress, your nervous system is going to be in sympathetic mode. It's going to be driving. It's going to be holding on tight. If you can breathe calmly and kind of get your nervous system slow down while you stretch, you're going to release the tension those hip flexors a hell of a lot more. You need to stretch your pecs and do the same exact thing. Um, I would probably stretch your lats too. You not always need to. The pecs and the hip flexors are more important, but I would do those, those things. Um, I would also work on hip mobility, ankle mobility, and thoracic mobility. You're sitting all day, so work extension through your hip, work movement through your ankles and hip, work thoracic extension, get your body to open up. And then when you go to the gym, be very posterior dominant. Lots of rows, lots of band pull-aparts, lots of pull-downs, um, less pull-downs than horizontal rows, but a lot of rowing and a lot of pull-aparts, pull face pulls, upper back work, um, a lot of glutes and a lot of hamstrings. Everything that is causing your shoulders and your hips to extend, you want to do. Hip thrust, um, even RDLs, um, Swiss ball curls, deadlifts, things like that, and then face pulls, pull-aparts, horizontal rows, and any variation. You want to do as much as you can in that movement, and I think you're good. So throughout the day, if you can get up, stretch your hip flexors, stretch your thoracic spine, um, stretch your chest, 
I think you do thoracic mobility, sorry, stretch your pecs, I think you'll be good if you can do that a couple times a day. Go move and walk so you're not sitting all day. If you can do the stand efforting thing and do ten, three 10 minute walks a day, that's what I do personally, I think you're gonna be better off. I, I'm recording this podcast standing up right now. It's a good example. Like instead of me sitting down for even longer because I've been on my computer all day, uh, working with clients, creating uh, content and getting on calls. I'm standing up for this podcast. I took a walk for my uh, three different calls today. So I had three different walks today. Um, I did a full uh, workout today and I did a lot of pulling. Like that's, that's always my goal. Um, and I think that's the best thing to do. Melina uh, Olivia DiPaolo. I like that name. What are some good ways to deal with a workout modification when healing a broken bone? I broke my metacarpals. Am I reading this wrong or is that a bone? Um, Any of the five bones in the hand. Oh, yeah, because metatarsal is the foot. I broke the biggest metatarsal on my foot. Um, I dropped a trap bar on it. Horrible mistake. Um, Two weeks ago, and I'm worried about muscle loss, especially in the upper body. Also, is it advisable to continue working my non-injured arm? Also, any suggestions nutrition-wise for the quicker recovery? I'm trying to take... Uh, trying to take more collagen and protein. Um, so it depends. I don't know how long you're going to be out. You know what I mean? Um, I think there's modifications for sure. So like example, if you have a cast on, um, you can probably wrap a band around the, the hand of your cast and you won't have any issues with your hand, which means you can do horizontal rows. You can actually do chest flies. You could do overhead press. You could do lateral raises. You could do face pulls. You can do a hell of a lot of stuff with a band. Um, so my advice to you, train your legs. Because that's going to still stimulate your nervous system. You're still going to keep up with your legs. I would use some band work and body weight work, whatever you can. So if you can't grip full resistance or full weight, dumbbells, that's, that's fine. Use a band and do any type of training. Remember that muscles are stupid. And what that means is they understand tension and resistance, not equipment. So if you're doing band rows for 30 reps at a time because that's what it takes to accumulate metabolites, lactic acid, and fatigue in your upper back – that's fine. It doesn't think in its head, oh, she's doing 30 reps of a fucking band. <laughs> That's not a heavy dumbbell row. I'm not going to grow. No, your muscles just know, shit, this is hard. There's tension. There's resistance. I need to adapt. Break down muscle, grow. That's all they know. So if you can just stimulate your muscles, you're going to be fine. You're not going to have any uh, um, uh, muscle loss whatsoever, muscle atrophy. That's the word I was looking for. Um, during that process, if you're just stimulating the muscles. And then the other thing is, is yeah, do a little bit of training on the other side because you don't want to go super, super heavy and don't do a ton of volume on your left side, but about 30 to 35% of what you do on one side neurologically gets transferred to the, the other side. So if you're doing band work and you're keeping it minimal, and then at the end of every day, you do a couple sets of chest press, overhead press, and rows on your left side, let's say, if your right hand's broke, 30% of that is going to transfer to the other side. Is your right side still going to be behind? Yeah, probably. But neurologically, you're still going to have that strength. What that means is when you get back into training that side, it's not going to take a huge hit strength-wise, which means your volume can still be a little bit higher. The muscle regrowth is going to be faster. And remember, it takes months to actually see muscle atrophy. True muscle atrophy is literally when the muscle tissue is gone. It broke down. It left. Muscle glycogen depletion is when we lose. That's like muscle memory, right? So right now, I'm like regrowing my leg. I definitely had some muscle atrophy. I didn't train my leg for five months. 
I trained my right side to keep neurological uh, benefits there. So my left side's still kind of strong, stronger than it would have been if I didn't. Um, and my right side still has some muscle. But I lost two and a half pounds just on my left thigh, just my left thigh around my femur. I did a DEXA. It's crazy. Um, and inches. So what that means is that I need to start working it now. I would say 75% of what I lost was simply muscle glycogen. So it's growing inches over the course of this last month, right? I'm starting to do real volume. Last week was – or two days ago was the first day I put a bar on my back and I kind of have the okay to really go hard on my legs again because my knee is 100% finally. Um, I haven't tested it with like box jumps and shit like that, but I can lift. Because of that, it's going to come a lot quicker because 75% of it – see if you guys can hear the ice cream man outside. If you can't, I'm just randomly pausing. But if you can, there's an ice cream man just sitting outside of my house selling ice cream. <laughs> um, but 75% uh, of that muscle loss is, is going to be muscle memory. It's going to come back really quick. It's not new muscle. Muscle memory isn't building new muscle tissue. It's literally just replenishing muscle glycogen because a lot of what a muscle is, the muscle tissue, is water. Guess what stores that water? Carbs. Guess what carbs are? Glycogen. So if you can just get back to it when you can – you're going to re replenish that muscle pretty quickly. I think you'd be surprised and, and thankful. Um, so don't overthink it. Don't overstress it. And yes, I would uh, for nutrition, uh, lots of anti-inflammation stuff. I would probably go low carb because you're not going to need as much carbs. Um, and anti-inflammatory diet is usually a higher fat. Collagen is great. Turmeric is great. Curcumin. Um, fish oil is going to be crucial. Um, what else did I do? Anti-inflammatory foods. Blueberries every day. Ginger. Garlic. Uh, olive oil, things like that. Super helpful. Vanessa, how long does it take for muscle tissue to break down when someone goes from working out hard, CrossFit five times a week, to almost being completely inactive due to a major back injury? Well, that is a timely question. I just answered that. And on the other hand, after two, three months of almost no exercise, would the minimal effective dose of working out change? Could they see body recomposition from just two days a week of lifting and one day a week of low impact? Um... I'm going to take a drink of water before this one. So it's kind of a loaded question, but since I just talked about muscle uh, tissue regrowth, I don't think I need to really go in depth with this. Um, how long does it take for muscle tissue? I would literally Google this because I don't know the exact amount, but there's a lot of studies on muscle atrophy, and I believe it takes anywhere between three to five months of completely zero activity in order to um, see muscle loss. Uh, a lot. I, if we're doing completely zero activity, I want to say it's like eight weeks, maybe even less. But when I say that, I mean bedridden. So if you get a disease and you're laying in a hospital bed, literally not moving your body whatsoever, not even walking, not doing anything, your nervous system will allow muscle uh, atrophy to happen a lot quicker. If you have an injury and you're still moving, you're still active, um, still walking, it's going to take a lot longer, um, but a few months. If you're injured like the last person and you have a broken hand, but you're still training the rest of your body, it's going to take even longer. So it really just depends on the severity of it and how bad your back injury is and what you can do with it. If you have a back injury so you can't deadlift, but you're still doing body weight squats, lunges, and curls and rows, like it's a different story. It's going to take a long time. It's probably not even going to happen. Um, if you go from completely inactive, like let's say what I did, I went from so when I got injured, I took a week off, and then I started training my upper body from a seated position. So volume was literally cut by probably 50 or 60% because I could only do seated, seated like bent rows. It was really awkward, uh, face pulls, 
lateral raises, curls, like very, very minimal, no big muscle groups, no legs. Um, and then I had surgery and I took another week off and then maybe two weeks. And then I got into like two days a week of upper body sitting. And then it was like three days a week of upper body sitting slash standing on crutches. And then it was, uh, three days of higher intensity upper body, but I didn't do legs for months. Um, and then I started doing legs probably, uh, six weeks ago. And it was like very minimal, like rehab exercises. And then I slowly ramped up. So for me, um, I did start with the minimal effective dose. So yes, I did one day a week of rehab. Then I did two days and then I did three days and then I did four days. And then I did two days a week or sorry, three days a week of lifting with really light weight, high frequency, uh, three days a week, but it was like body weight exercises, uh, blood flow restriction, stuff like that. That's the minimal effective dose for me. Usually with injuries like that, it's better to do the minimal effective dose for sure, but it's better to do so with frequency than it is volume per session. So instead of me going, I'm going to do eight different rehab exercises and the three exercises I know I can do for a ton of volume on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I was like, I'm going to do a little bit of everything Monday, Wednesday, Friday, more frequency, more anabolic signals to the muscle, more chances for it to grow, more chances to work on the skill of the movement pattern again, um, and more time to recover. So that would be my recommendation. Um, I think you could see recomposition from uh, two days lifting, but the, the problem with when we talk about volume, intensity, and frequency, it's a massive bell curve, and it's all individual. Everybody falls in a different place on that curve. Therefore, your ability to recomp with a quote-unquote minimal effective dose is different than mine, different than anybody's. Um, so I can't say for sure. Mata. If you were in a reverse or building phase, is it bad to have once a week cheat meals? If you eat way over your fats for one meal, is it okay to eat less fats for a few days to balance it out? Or is it better to do, go right back to eating your normal fat macros? Or is it better to just, that's a lot of ors, is it better to just not do cheat meals that frequent since you were already in a slight surplus during the week? Hope this makes sense. Um, so let's, let's start with the reverse. If you're in a reverse diet, I would say it is bad to have a cheat meal. Not because oh my God, you had a high calorie day, but because two things. Number one, it's there's no benefit to a refeed day on a reverse diet. If you have one refeed day, no physiological advantage happens. However, if you just be patient and you slowly add calories, you're going to have a lot more benefit because every day is a little bit more calories. And then eventually you'll have enough calories to be more flexible with your diet. It's no longer a cheat meal. You just fit it in your macros, right? Um, if you eat way over your fats for one meal, is it okay to eat less fats for a few days to balance it out? Absolutely. Um, or should you go back back to your normal macros? Possibly. Um, it's definitely better to not have cheat meals though. Like I think that's a fact in any situation. Um, if you're in a building phase, you should have enough flexibility um, inside your calories to not have cheat meals. If you have the random barbecue buffet or like barbecue potluck with your family for a birthday and you just know your fats go over, there's nothing you could do about it. That's fine. I mean, shit happens. I would do the whole Rob Peter to pay Paul thing for sure and drop fat over the next few days because we have to remember, especially in a surplus, if you're in a surplus and you're training super hard, um, your surplus should almost predominantly be coming from carbohydrates. The process of your body taking carbohydrates and turning it into fat is actually very difficult. It's a process that is very inefficient um, and your body's not going to do it. Instead, it's going to take fat and turn it to fat because it has enough fat in the diet and it's easy to turn a lipid to a lipid. You don't got to do much. It just has to store it. So if I'm in a surplus and I'm eating a lot of carbs and I have one day where I go super high in fat, it's going to be really easy to store those fats. So the best thing to do is try to drop carbs that day to make the calorie balance equate and then um, and or spend the next few days dropping down carbs. 
fat. So if you go over fats by 30 grams one day, take 10 grams of fat out for the next three days, your weekly total balance is going to be in check. Um, I think that's a very smart thing to do. Um, I think it's an easy balance to make, easy compromise to make. Um, what you don't want to do is too big of swings. If you go over 50 grams of fat, don't try to eat no fat the next day. That's a very unhealthy relationship. And it's a very unhealthy relationship if you're consistently doing it. So with our clients, we really try to make sure that they're not creating bad relationships with food when tracking macros. And in these scenarios, we avoid cheat meals. We promote flexibility. We promote healthy foods. Um, and we're going to promote robbing Peter to pay Paul in random situations on occasion, but it's very infrequent because if you just keep doing it and relying on this, uh, borrowing system, I think it causes a poor relationship with food for sure. Um, yeah, that would be, that would be my, my advice on that. Thomas, I never know if it's Babyak or Babyak, Babyak, B-A-B-Y-A-K, Thomas Babyak, let's go with that. Uh, and I know you personally, bro, you were a client of mine and you are a trainer yourself. So I'm not saying this as if I don't know you. I just realized I've never known how to actually pronounce your last name. So I apologize if I've been butchering it because you've asked questions before. Um, if you find maintenance calories but want to add more muscle without getting fluffy, what is the safe way amount of calories to increase and typical with which macros? Typically, which macros? Um, if you find maintenance calories but want to add muscle without getting fluffy, what is the safe amount of calories to increase in which macros? Um, I would say which macros first and foremost? Carbs. Always carbs. Uh, the best plan in my opinion to go for a lean gaining phase if you want to build muscle and you do not want to add fluff or fat, the best approach to do is have your protein set, have your fat set at the minimal effective dose. And when I say that, I don't mean go low fat. I mean bring your fats up to a point where – Flexibility is there, adherence is there, hormonal function is there, and nervous system function is there. When you get to a point where you're like, I feel really good, right? Like, so if I look at my diet, I don't have a super high amount of fat, but I feel really good. I'm not going to go below this, and I have no reason to go above it. Everything above this point should be carbs because carbs are going to promote more muscle growth. They're going to be way harder to store as fat, and they're going to promote better recovery and performance in the gym. Therefore, that's going to lead to more muscle. So you almost always want to kind of get your set point for protein, get your set point for fat, set your carbs, and then as you increase your calories, you're just going to do it with carbs. Um, my recommendation for adding calories, I mean, I could give you an amount and say, hey, I would add 50 calories, 100 calories, um, and that's going to be anywhere between – you know, like, I mean, realistically 10 to 20 grams of carbs, 25 grams of carbs at a jump. It depends on your scale. Um, cause I could also say, Hey, like you're going to, you're going to bump up 5% of calories via carbs every time you hit a plateau. Well, if somebody's consuming 3000 calories, that's a lot more carbs than if somebody's consuming 1500 calories. So, and both answers are correct. I have found in my experience that an advanced lifter, somebody who's been in the gym, who has built muscle, has done cuts, has done bodybuilding shows, which is you, so you are an advanced lift, uh, lifter a asking this question, I have found that you're typically going to only need anywhere between 50 to 150 max calories in a surplus. So if you're trying to gain muscle, you're probably only going to add, again, that's what, 10 carbs, 12 carbs, or up to 25 carbs at most. Um, you really just don't need that much, um, maybe 30, 35 grams of carbs in a surplus, right? So that's that's nothing. That's literally like a few rice cakes, half a cup of rice. Like it's nothing crazy. But the reason for that is because the more advanced you get, the harder it is to build muscle, period. So you're probably going to be aiming. Like if you want to get really serious and take this the slow route, um, then you're looking at a half a pound gain per month. 
That's not much. But as an advanced lifter, that's a half of a pound steak. So if you take eight ounces of steak and slap it on your body, that's a good amount of muscle. But that's the the way you're going to get the least amount of fat. And that might mean you gain three quarters of a pound per month, but only half a pound of that is, is muscle. And that's fine because after six months, you've gained, what is that, three pounds at most? Not even. That's like three pounds. Right, and at that point you do a little mini cut, cut two to three pounds, and you go back to the lean gain. Uh, but you're going for a very slow progress, so you're you're almost just like reverse dieting it. You're basically reverse dieting yourself into a higher surplus. Is like all you're doing. All right, I'm gonna pull my phone out because we have some questions from Instagram as well. Okay, um, this is a long question. Actually, we'll go with this one first. I have two questions from Instagram. This one's a little bit shorter. This one is from Katie. It could be Katie. It's spelled K-A-T-T-Y. Usually Katie is spelled with one Y or one T. Katie Z Lock. I've got a question for your next Q&A. My current coach has me eating a high protein slash carb, low fat before and after my workouts. Sometimes when I do my workouts at night, I like my post-workout meal to just be my dinner which usually includes higher fats. Does it matter if I have a higher fat and balanced meal after my workout, if my macros are still in line at the end of the day, or could having some fat pre and post workout be hurting my results? Thanks. So basically I'm asking, she sent another one. So basically I'm asking if macro ratios really matter pre and post or if it's just uh, hitting total macros. So what I would say is this, level one is hitting total macros. So if you come to me and you have 20 to 30 pounds to lose and you're not hitting macros, that's all we're focusing on. I don't care about your meal timing. We're just focusing on macros. That's going to get you that first five to 10 pounds. You hit a plateau. Before I cut calories, I might say, hey, let's sharpen up meal timing a little bit. Let's balance your meals, okay? Let's just let's stick to a meal plan because if you're eating three meals one day, five meals the next day, six meals the next day, your body can't regulate to that. And what they've found is that energy expenditure goes up and insulin sensitivity improves if you stick to a meal schedule, which means that instead of having a different meal ratio every single day, it just means that you're actually hitting the same amount of meals. So maybe it's four meals every day at these certain times. Your insulin sensitivity improves. Your calorie expenditure actually improves. That's a really good thing for fat loss. So I might implement this. Um, after that, if you hit another plateau, let's say you have five pounds to lose. Then you start worrying about what you're worrying about right now. Um, this is something I do in my diet. I do make sure of these things. I have fats in my diet, and I'm going to link a, a – we just posted a blog about uh, – it's called pre intra post Mastering Your Workout Nutrition. We just posted and we talk about all the stuff, so I'll link that in the show notes. But um, I do this right now. I pay very close attention, but I'm getting ready for – I'm going to do a photo shoot in August, so I have some time, but I'm meticulous. I want to save my calories. I, I like doing the science stuff, and I can be meticulous, and I can adhere to it. So I have every reason to, and I really, really do care about getting a good pump and building muscle in the gym. I want to maintain as much muscle as possible. So pre intra and post-workout does come in handy. Um, so they're not wrong whatsoever. My thing with this is, is that I won't ask somebody to do that specific of details with their meals unless I feel that they're advanced, I feel they're well-educated, I feel that they can easily adhere to it, or I feel that it really matters for their goal. If somebody just wants to lose weight, they don't really care about being shredded, they don't care about workout performance, you don't really need to over-glorify this. If somebody does want to be shredded, does want to build muscle, really cares about workout performance, then absolutely, I think this is something to, to think about. Um, if this causes you to have poor lifestyle, like it, it doesn't vibe with your lifestyle, and that means you're going to fall off sooner, whether that's in 20 days, 30 days, or 80 days, I think you shouldn't focus on it because I'd rather you adhere for 200 days, right, the whole year. So those are my thoughts on it. Now, 
Um, fats being in the workouts, a couple things there. It depends when your pre-workout meal is. So for me, I actually have – like so if I'm eating a meal – like let's say I wake up early and I train like this morning at 7 a.m. And I'm not going to eat till 6, 6.15, like within an hour. So like 30 minutes to 45 minutes, 30 minutes to an hour before, I'm probably going to have a really low-fat, high-carb meal, high-protein. So I might have a protein shake with cream of rice – blueberries, and maybe I like grass-fed butter in my cream of rice or my rice or my oatmeal. Butter makes every starch better. I might put a half of a tablespoon of butter. So whey protein has zero fat. Blueberries have zero fat. Cream of rice has zero fat. That means I'm adding five and a half grams of fat to that meal. That's very low. It's not going to affect much. I might even take it out completely, and I have zero fat, and that's going to be like right away. I tend to have a hyperglycemia response, which means I kind of get shaky and my blood sugar drops if I don't have any fats to slow that digestion down. Um, and that's a personal response. Some people do fine. Some people don't. You got to test that. But like if I'm doing a, like an ideal world, I'm working out at like 10 a.m. and I eat at like 7 or between 7 and 8. So I have a full two to three hours before my workout that I eat. I'm having oatmeal with butter and egg whites with some spinach in it. So now I have probably – 10 to 15 grams of fat with the butter and oatmeal, um, zero fat from the eggs and spinach, but I'm having high, uh, slower digestive protein. I'm having a little bit of spinach, things that are going to slow that digestion down, but I have two to three hours before I'm going to work out. So that's where the pre-workout changes. You can have some fats in your pre-workout if, if you're going to have some time before your workout, pre-workout meal, if you're going to have some time before your workout. However, if it's within the hour, I would say the fats go from like zero to five grams. If it's within two to three hours, it goes from like eight to 15 max. Um, I don't like doing more than 15 grams. I think people have issues there. Usually between five to 10 works best. Um, if you're, I mean, if you have like six hours before your training session, just treat it like a normal meal and have a protein shake right before you go in. Um, with your post-workout meal, it's the same exact thing. The sooner to your workout, the more likely you want to have lower fats. What I suggest to people in that scenario and this is what I used to do when I used to train at night is, uh, or in the evening, is like I would finish my work day, I would work out, and I would immediately have a whey slash highly branched cyclic dextrin shake. So I have 25 grams of whey protein, 25 grams of uh, highly branched cyclic dextrin carb. That's going to blunt the cortisol response, get me into recovery. That's going to solve my low-fat, high-carb, high-protein meal right away. And then I take one to two hours to like get settled in the kitchen, start cooking, uh, be with my family and it takes me a while to eat. And at that point I've already digested my shake. I've already brought my sympathetic nervous system down to a parasympathetic that's going to help digestion. So if you think about being in fight or flight, if you're in a sympathetic driven state from training, cortisol's high, adrenaline's high, you're wired. And then you go and try to eat. Do you really think your body's going to be able to digest? No, like you're in a high driven stressful state and your blood flow is to your limbs to train, not your gut to digest. And that's a real thing. The blood will travel where it needs it. So if you do the shake, it calms you down, your blood flow will change, your gut will be ready, your nervous system calms down, and then you can go eat. Um, so that's the best solution for you is have that shake, then go enjoy a, a balanced meal and you'll be set. I hope that answered the question. If you need more help with that, just let me know. All right, so this is a long one. This is a literal case study. Here's a scenario. My boyfriend used to do CrossFit five times a week but herniated a disc, and this is from VM Gillette. Herniated his disc, herniated disc in his back in February and had to stop training completely. An online coach gave him macros in March with the goal of weight loss, but he has been following them on and off ever since with negative results. Over the past few months, he has lost significant muscle tone and put on some fat. 
although his weight has stayed in the 195 to 200 range. I told him he needs to stop trying to diet, quote-unquote, and focus on injury recovery and repairing his metabolism until he gets back to training. He is projected to start working out again in six to eight weeks, so I came up with a plan for three six- to eight-week periods to recover, rebuild, and then cut. I would be so grateful if you could take a glance and give me your input. I just want my boyfriend to be happy and healthy again. Stats. He's a male. He's 200 pounds, 5'10", preciously eating 2235 calories, 165 grams of protein. Um, first things first, I would bump that up significantly. Um, if he's 200 pounds and he's injured, remember that when we're injured and we have any bone, tissue, muscle, any type of damage in the body, protein is actually going to be one of the best things to help us fix that issue. Right, so when I tore my meniscus, I took in more protein to help re uh, rebuild that tendon, rebuild the tissue, rebuild the muscle, maintain the muscle. So if he's losing muscle mass, he needs more than his body weight in protein, most likely. If he's 200 pounds, but he should weigh 185 pounds, then I would say 200 pounds, 200 grams of protein is great. If he's 200 pounds and he maybe has five to 10 pounds to lose, I would actually go like 1.2, like bump him up to 225 grams of protein. Extra protein in this case will be good. He'll actually burn more calories through digestion as well. Um, so bump that up, bump carbs down, and leave fat. Um, 70 grams of fat for a 200-pound male is totally fine. I think that's solid. Um, it's enough fat. Um, I would probably bring his calories down via carbs. So what I would do is I would actually probably – you could literally do this. Swap carbs and in, in protein. He'd be eating 235 grams of protein, which is a big jump from where he's at right now. So maybe slowly work him up there. But I would go higher than his – body weight and protein to help the injury recovery, help muscle maintenance be higher. Um, and studies prove that I would drop carbs to 165 grams. He's not training. He doesn't need that much carbs at all. Technically he doesn't need any carbs. He could literally get away with eating hundred carbs, but 165 gives him a little bit more flexibility to be satiated. And then 71 grams of fat. I would bump that to 70 just because I think 71 is a pointless number to shoot for. Um, I would do that right off the gate and that's his recovery phase for six to eight weeks. I think that'd be perfect. Um, switch to higher fat, moderate carb, high protein to allow, eat plenty of collagen fish, high quality red meat, mixed nuts, colorful fruits and vegetables. Yep. Olive oil, et cetera. Activity from 10 K steps a day. I love it all. I think you're really on point, on point, low impact cardio on elliptical three to four times a week. PT exercises two times daily. Um, continue to reverse diet as long as the weight stays. I wouldn't even reverse diet him. Honestly, like I think like during that recovery phase, you got to remember like, his like the biggest thing I would do with this person, and this just goes for injury in general. When you go through an injury and you stop activity, your calorie expenditure and your uh, glycogen demand, so the the amount of glycogen your body needs to actually like function and use its muscles, goes down so significantly. Your energy expenditure goes down so significantly. You just simply do not need carbs. So I actually would not. Uh, leave his carbs there. I wouldn't reverse him yet. I would literally plan on keeping him at that level, which is probably his new maintenance. Remember that his current maintenance is not his past maintenance because he's burning far less calories. Um, he needs more protein, so bump that up to anywhere between 200 to 235 grams to help that recovery and help to maintain muscle. I think anywhere between I think 70 grams of fat is perfect. That's enough to be satiated. It's enough to cause anti-inflammation, but it's not too much to where you're going in a surplus of fat and going to store fat. Um, and then lower carbs anywhere between 100 to 165. If I, I know this personally. If he's just doing rehab exercises and no actual training, the caloric expenditure and the muscular demand of rehab training is so minimal. You really don't have to worry about much. Um, then as he can ramp up training, you reverse diet him. So as you add training volume in, every time you add serious volume in, you simply bump his calories up, whether it's 
20 grams of carbs a week uh, or biweekly, or it's 10 grams of carbs a week. It doesn't really matter. Take it slow. But as you add volume, you add carbs. Until you get to his new maintenance, he feels fueled. He's probably going to recomp in that, in that place. He's going to burn fat from the training, and he's going to build muscle. And it's more of a muscle memory, right? He's just replacing glycogen inside the muscles that were inactive, but it's going to seem like your recomps, build muscle, burn fat. Um, and then once you get to that maintenance, if he wants to continue changing his physique now that he's a hundred percent and you're going into a quote unquote cut, I would drop fats, bring up carbs a little bit, but keep calories the same. So going from the, the reverse, or I'm sorry, going from the original place of low carb, high fat, extra high protein to recover during rehab, during the injury, then go into a slow reverse diet. You can bring protein back down to 200 grams, keep fat at 70 and slowly bring up carbs while you add volume for six to eight weeks. And then once you get to that point where he's hundred percent ready to train again, at that point, you would take whatever calorie he's at. So whatever you reverse dieted to, you would keep the calories the same, bring carbs up bring fats down and you would increase intensity of training to burn more calories and promote fat loss. But the carbs are going to go towards training recovery. Fat's going to be lower. So your caloric uh, calories are going to stay the same, but you're going to be in a macro deficit, I would call it, um, and see where that gets you. I think you would start losing fat without cutting calories. And then obviously at a certain point, you have to cut calories. So I hope that helps. I think that's a really, really good answer for you. And it's pretty detailed. All right. Last question of the day, guys. Christiana Funmi, favorite compound lift and why? P.S. I don't want to hear it depends. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Um, favorite compound lift? Hmm. It's a toss-up, but it sounds crazy. I would say the dumbbell bench press. I love a dumbbell bench press. I feel it in my chest more and my shoulders feel way better than a barbell. Um, I haven't done a barbell bench press in I don't know how fucking long. Um, I'll do barbell incline. I'll do barbell decline. For some reason, flat barbell, I get like the shoulder joint itself – the, it gets stressed out. It's very anterior deltoid dominant, the bench press. People don't realize. But a dumbbell bench press, I can angle my shoulders better, get my back more involved, get a bigger stretch in my chest. I love that. But if we're talking barbell, um, I'm going to go with the just classic barbell deadlift. There's something about a deadlift I love. And I think right now, because my leg, I've been missing the deadlift so much. I'm actually going to try it tomorrow. I'm going to do a deadlift because uh, it's a pull day. I'm really excited about that. I think uh, I think deadlift is my favorite compound lift. And I think it's the most total body. Like people argue the squat is the best. I think the deadlift hits more muscles and it's just more of a brute. Like you just look like a badass if you can deadlift hella weight. Name your, and her other question, um, name your favorite Lil Wayne and Kanye West albums. Um, I'm not a huge Lil Wayne guy, to be honest with you, but if I had to name my favorite album, it would actually be a mixtape. Um, and it's a toss-up because he has some really great ones. Like, uh, I love No Ceilings. Um, that's a classic. Uh, I think I'm, ooh, that's hard. It's either between No Ceilings, the, I'm going to go with the Drought 3. The Drought 3 I'm going with because it's such a classic album. I think No Ceilings is better, um, but he's older in his career. He's more creative at that point. But the Drought 3 just brings back memories because when that came out, Lil Wayne was just destroying the mixtape game. Like nobody was coming out with mixtape like he was. I remember every single week coming to school and a friend would have the Dat Piff app out and he'd be like, fuck, dude, Lil Wayne came out with another mixtape. And he would just take beats that we were listening to on the radio of popular songs and just murder them. Um, the, the Drought 3 killed it. And like uh, Sky is the Limit, like when that song came out, I was like, it's game over. 
Lil Wayne has officially taken over the rap game. And he did. Um, so I would go with the drop three for Lil Wayne. It's a mixtape, not an album, but I think that counts. Um, if I had to say an album, I'd definitely say the Carter two, because I think the Carter two is, uh, was just gold. So good. Um, but I would still go with drop three if I can. Kanye West album. Um, I want to say college dropout because it's his first album. It just got me into him. I'm, I'm a huge Kanye West music fan. I'm not a huge Kanye West person fan. I think he's kind of become a, quite the character, but, um, I do love his old music, but I would say late registration is my favorite album by Kanye West. Um, it's just, it's like after college dropout. So he was out of his like prep phase, but he was still in it a little bit. Like he was still young Kanye. He was still like puffy cheek Kanye, but he also had a little bit more of his own swag. He had a little bit more of his own authority in the game because he was being more well-known. And I think he, he stepped more into his creative at that point. And there's just so many good songs that never really got like major either. Like we major was a great song. Um, we major, uh, Crack music with the game was sick. Diamonds are forever was sick, but the remix with Jay Z was even sicker. Um, Gone, Gone was so sick. G O N E. He had a song on there that he created the beat for, uh, called uh, "My Way Home," and Common's the only rapper in it. He's not even in the song, but it's a great song. Um, hey Mama was on there. Roses was on there. Late Registration was a great album. That's definitely my favorite Kanye West album. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.